Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO. And today we are continuing back in the podcast studio, but with our series on COVID-19 and what our pancreatic cancer community should know. And this is part two. We're on the phone with Dr. Paul Oberstein, who is the director of GI Medical Oncology and the assistant director for the Pancreas Center at the Perlmutter Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health in New York City. Dr. Oberstein, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for having me today, Dina. Well, as we were talking before we started recording, Dr. Oberstein, and uh, we were saying this is such a fluid time for everyone, and not only in the world, but clearly here in the, in the medical oncology space. And what we want to do here is just talk about some of the things that our pancreatic cancer community, in particular patients, their families, uh, people who are going through treatment, and then also those folks that will potentially be diagnosed um, here during this time, what they should and should not know, or should know and should not do, I should say. So Dr. Oberstein, for someone who is currently in treatment, and again, I, I preface this by saying to the audience, this is a very fluid, we're, we're recording this on uh, Monday the 16th, just to give everyone some perspective here. Um, most schools here in the Northeast and, and within the tri-state area have closed. Uh, the, the social distancing has uh, has become a reality and uh, they're being encouraged now to, I think, drop groups to about 50, uh, even less in some areas. Um, so for those people that are currently in treatment, What's the current protocol, Dr. Oberstein? So, right, this is a very challenging question to answer because it is so fluid. I would say that one of the biggest concerns in the U.S. and I think throughout the world is how COVID-19 will impact our overall healthcare systems, even independent of particular patients with cancer or certain diagnoses. And there is concern that we don't have capacity if things get severe to do normal hospital functions as we had done previously. And thus we're developing all kinds of contingency plans, many of which we hope we don't have to use, to figure out how to prioritize or adjust the delivery of care in order to provide the best care for everybody. At any large medical center, including at NYU, this means that people with cancer are impacted by people with respiratory illnesses and people with other diseases. However, you know, our our goal at this point is to allow each person to continue the therapy that they're getting if it's providing benefit for that person. And so we're trying to do everything possible to minimize interruptions, but think in the big picture as to what resources we can provide and how we can optimally manage patients. And what that's meant for us is that we've sat down with our clinical teams and looked at every single patient and every visit and ask the question again, is this visit necessary? Is there a way to do this remotely? Is there some alternate chemotherapy regimen or schedule that may be almost as good or just as good and can help the patient but minimize their exposure to other people and minimize the burden on the healthcare system? So our, I know for some chemo patients, uh, in particular pancreatic cancer, we'll talk in that space because that's what we focus on and I know that's your focus. I know uh, with like 5-FU, I believe is a treatment, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sometimes patients do go home with like the pump 
um, over a series of days. Is that something that uh, maybe some of the centers or some of the the folks are in your sphere are thinking about doing more like that kind of type of treatment where a patient would come in possibly and then go home, like come in quickly? Yeah, so, so those are those are all things that we're considering. I mean, obviously, we want to start by by determining what we think is best for the patient. Yeah. But there are different treatment regimens. There are some regimens that might take six or eight hours, and others that might take one to two hours. And often we wouldn't have considered that in determining the best treatment. We would try to figure out what we think is going to have the best efficacy for that patient. Correct. But but there are certainly situations in which it would be better for the person because you'll minimize their ex- exposure to other people. You'll minimize their community exposure if you can minimize either the time that they're in a medical center or the number of visits they have to make in mm-hmm. a given month. And so we're, we're definitely taking that into account and making adjustments as necessary to accommodate for those realities. However, I would say that, especially with pancreatic cancer, but this is true about many cancers, if a patient's on a treatment that's working for that patient, we're very reluctant to make changes because not every treatment works and not every person responds the same way. And if you've got something that's that's going well, you really want to continue that as much as possible. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. I mean, I think, you know, I you know, this is such a fluid moment in time and I think people you know, it's it's hard not to stay off of social media or the internet, right? Because I think that's where a lot of people are getting information, whether it's closures. But I, I think there's a lot of stuff floating around there, um, clearly, you know, and I think sometimes that that decision making process can be you know, kind of nudged or impacted by someone reading something and, and fear setting in or, you know, something read on the, the Twitter sphere that is not necessarily accurate. No, I agree. I think I would reinforce that, that these decisions should be made, you know, in, in concert with your healthcare provider so that they, they're thinking about this. I think in every medical center in the country, people are thinking about these issues. There, there's no clear guidance because it's such a fluid situation. But, but people are thinking about it and people are asking about it. And I would certainly encourage patients not to unilaterally make changes in their treatment or their schedule without discussing it with their provider. Yeah. Yeah. Important, important uh, message there, you know, make sure that they, they do consult with their uh, physicians and clinicians. And I know from talking to many of our doctors and scientists and surgeons, I mean, a, a lot of surgeries that are not like emergencies are being put on hold right across the board. It looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of these surgeons I would imagine are kind of pitching in because they, you know, surgeons, if they're not operating they're and then they're not seeing patients, then they, they can possibly pitch in and not necessarily uh, diagnose people or, or prescribe oncology. But I, I, there might be a case, Dr. Oberstein, where maybe if this, you know, goes on for eight weeks, as they're saying that, you know, that support of the, the oncology suite that you have from uh, surgical oncologists that work with medical oncologists may be able to help in just communicating with patients, right? Because you can only right. talk to one person at a time. And so it, it's, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I've got a yeah, question. For, 
I've got a question for you. Now, I know, you know, I, I don't want to be redundant. And I think that the, the medical community has done a great job of this. And, and, you know, in terms of what to avoid, and, you know, we've talked about the large crowds now, there, there's a requirement in most places now where it's, you know, depending on where you live, the number may be as low as 12 I've seen. But, um, you know, washing your hands, avoiding public areas, the social distancing. Is there anything else that pancreatic cancer patients should be aware of or are those kind of really the ones that we really want to kind of hit home here? So I, I think those points are all very good points. And they're, you know, washing hands has been reinforced by the CDC and by every public health official for, for weeks. Um, it's you know, it's important to remember that many pancreas cancer patients and many cancer patients in general are elderly. And, and there's no question that that viruses in general, flu viruses and presumably coronavirus viruses affect the elderly at with greater severity than younger people. And so that's really important to keep in mind that it's not just a person has pancreatic cancer, but there are other medical conditions and especially their age and if they have any underlying lung disease. But of course, if patients are getting chemotherapy, that also means that they're immunosuppressed to some extent. Their body's been stressed, certainly, even if not immunosuppressed, and they're more susceptible. And so I think that the, the key things are really having extra precautions around people getting chemotherapy, people who are elderly, and making sure that if someone has any concern for exposure or symptoms or fever and they haven't been tested, to try to avoid exposure to the extent that is reasonable. I think that's going to change going forward because our expectation is that in the next week or so, we're going to have widespread testing available. And then, and that will really change because it's, it's unfortunate for someone to have to be distanced from their whole social network because we just don't know. And I think we're going to know, we may find out more than we want to know, but I think we're going to know who's positive and who's not much more rapidly. And that will enable people to be around someone who's unclear. But I think in the interim, if someone you know has a, a question about corona, has traveled somewhere, has been exposed, and has symptoms, really avoiding contact, close contact with someone with pancreas cancer is a good idea. On the flip side, you know, we're trying to be very careful about not over over avoiding any exposure and making people vulnerable to to not getting the care they need. And if someone doesn't have symptoms, you know, we're still, we're trying to minimize social contact, but we're not trying to minimize medical contact. And so I think if someone needs medical care and the, their family members who are helping care for them or the doctors are not symptomatic, they should definitely get that care. Now, just for, I, I got two questions that just popped up in the, what you just said. Define close contact, because I think this is something, I mean, everyone, you know, I mean, depending on it, you talk to my mom or you talk to, uh, you know, someone's grandmother, close contact is not, you know, just hugging and kissing, you know, as a, a, coming from an Italian family, you know, that, that's considered cl close contact, right? Is like actually hugging these folks and, and kissing these folks when you greet them. Are, are we talking about just distancing ourselves completely? six feet or are we talking about you know just not even being in the same room or having a, a barrier like a wall or a door right so, so this is a good question i think there is not a one clear answer i mean there have been there have been discussions about what's called sustained close contact yeah which is also not well defined what does yeah. sustained mean yeah um of course, the, the ultimate concern that one has to remember is you're worried about transmitting a virus. Viruses are transmitted usually through aerosol, someone sneezing, or through 
bodily fluids. So yeah. certainly anything where you are worried about using the same cup or the same thing of that nature, that should be avoided. Um, but of course, people who are symptomatic and coughing and sneezing can have a pretty wide spray, Correct. so to speak. And so that's challenge. And that's why part of the social distancing is that in a public setting, in a restaurant, in a supermarket, on a train for sure, it's very hard for us to know who was there before, who, how long this survives. I think that's not all well known yet. Correct. And so that is where there's a lot of concern. I think in someone's home, if they're around people who are clearly not ill and not sneezing and not having fever or respiratory symptoms, then casual contact is, is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly this is something that's evolving. And, you know, what we worry about is that there are some asymptomatic people who may be carrying the virus as well. But, but at the current time, and this is specific for today, you know, I, I don't think the CDC is recommending avoiding all human contact. Correct. And, and that's probably would not be helpful for people. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Something else that uh, popped up here as we were talking. And, and so my aunt has, uh, has been battling some, some issues uh, the last couple of years. And so she has like a feeding tube. And I was just thinking about this uh, as you were talking before, you know, uh, um, I think everything's been that I've seen about, you know, um, the virus spreading is like through these droplets, right? Like something gets on your hand, then you put it up to your face. Um, it gets into your mouth. It gets into an open pore, uh, like your nasal passages and stuff like that, or your mouth. But for people who have ports, um, I haven't really seen anything. I mean, I guess that unless they're accessing the port, there's no way for that virus to yeah, get so in through the port. It, it shouldn't. I mean, yeah. I think there is always a very small risk of infection with the port, but Correct. this is not. I think we'd be much more worried about nasal and oral transmission. Um, but, you know, certainly it's true that anyone with, I mean, I, I think that the port would probably be a minimal risk. Correct. Yeah. Cause there's no way to access that unless you actually, you know, and uh, when you put in the, the line there that you're actually Correct. puncturing the, the skin barrier there. Um, what should people know, Paul, that, and, you know, this is the other population that we have, you know, that, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, you know, pancreatic cancer doesn't wait for COVID-19 to, to start, you know, showing its symptoms and affecting other families. But what about those people that are, you know, think they, you know, have symptoms or not feeling well? I mean, I, I hope this does not happen. Naturally, there's a heightened awareness of this virus and, the, and I wouldn't say it's a panic, but you know this uh, this heightened awareness of people that might be sick because of COVID nineteen. But you know, there's also people that are going to be sick because of pancreatic cancer. So, what could we say to those folks? So, those folks should they avoid coming to the hospitals, or what, what should what should we recommend for those folks that might be diagnosed with the disease or pre-diagnosed and are having health issues not related to COVID nineteen, but similar to pancreatic cancer? So, so this is where it gets very tricky. I mean, I think we, pancreas cancer will not wait for COVID-19, nor will many other cancers. Correct. So, you know, we, our hospital under the directive of New York City Department of Health has canceled all elective surgeries. But what they define as an elective surgery is something that can be pushed off for three months without significant consequence. And so obviously most, almost all cancers do not fall in that yeah. category. Um, but it, but it is important to recognize that there might be other tests, times where we might rely on imaging, where we would have previously required a biopsy, or you know where some things might be changed in terms of how we determine 
the next steps in treating a patient. But I, I think anyone who has symptoms should certainly reach out to their physician, either symptoms on pancreas cancer or a presum- presumptive diagnosis and needs to discuss a treatment plan or options. Uh, we're encouraging our patients to call much more than they used to, and we interview them on the phone about exposure and symptoms. And we actually are screening people at the door to make sure that we are not exposing other patients to someone with potential symptoms. And so we're doing more of that screening ahead of time, but we're, we are trying to get every patient in who needs to be seen. So important message there is if you are feeling symptomatic, um, which I know is, you know, this is the, the hard part with pancreatic cancer, as we all know, Dr. Oberstein, right? There, there, the symptoms are so vague, right? So this right. is the, the hardest part, I think, for us in this disease as we, you know, f- fight to bring awareness, unlike other cancers that, you know, are, are more atypical in terms of their symptoms. But if people do, uh, do have these issues, whether they become jaundice and have abdominal lower, uh, abdominal pain, lower back pain, um, rapid weight loss, um, just know that something's going on, they should still reach out to their medical professions and professionals and, and still go in to uh, try to get the diagnosis or try to figure out what's going on um, regardless yep. of the current situation and, and just be mindful. Absolutely. Um, are you guys- I think one other thing, sorry, one oh, other okay. thing I would add is, is just medication. You know, many of our patients have pain uh, issues or digestive issues and they're taking pancreatic enzymes or narcotic medicine or other pain medicine. And, and it's just really important to continue those supplies, you know, not to, even if we're not seeing patients, we're making sure we're refilling their medications. People should reach out to their providers and make sure they have enough of what they need because we, we don't know if they're going to be difficulties getting in or difficulties, you know, and this is not panic buying, I would no. say, but if someone has a medication that's providing them benefit, they should continue that. And, you know, we, we don't think there are going to be any challenges in terms of obtaining the medication. We just think that there are going to be difficulties getting into the doctor possibly or seeing a provider. And so it's important to be proactive about that and make sure that you know you think about your supply and think about who you need to contact to make sure you're keeping up. That's important. That's important. And I know nowadays, I mean, I, I know, I'm not sure if Amazon is doing this yet, but I know that, you know, with a lot of the, the pharmaceutical companies by mail, and I don't know directly how that impacts the pancreatic cancer community, but I know for my mom, certain certain medications, she's a breast cancer survivor, um, certain medications that she's been on because of, of the complications to that um, do come in through the mail. So there, there's plenty of ways, I, I would assume, to get those types of medications to you. And, and like you said, just call your healthcare professional. On that note, Paul, uh, Dr. Oberstein, this has come up, um, and I've heard this, chemo break. So for some of those patients that have been kind of, you know, through a couple regimens of chemotherapy, the numbers are stable, they look good. Is now the kind of time to think about a chemo break? Not to say that this wasn't the discussion prior, but maybe if you've had discussion with some families prior to and they just haven't kind of made that decision, would this be a good time to go on a chemo break, you think? So potentially. I mean, I think we are certainly doing that in our practice. We're looking at people who've either been stable for a while or were sort of getting tired of chemo and needed a little bit of a, a break. And trying to take advantage of this time, again, the thing to remember is that we really don't want to expose our patients to coming out of their house, coming to a medical center, and getting chemotherapy that suppresses their immune system and weakens them if we can avoid it. 
And given the heightened risk due to COVID, I think there changes the calculus sometimes, and this may be an opportunity. And we are certainly using this opportunity. One of the challenges is that we don't know how long it's going to go on for. Right. So yeah. I think some patients were staggering. We're saying let's skip every other one or something, and you know, trying to do that. But of course, this is all brand new, and this is really the first week that we're making these changes. And we'll just have to see over the next weeks to months if that if this persists. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very as we said a very fluid situation. I've got one more question for you, and this just popped in. I remember when my dad was doing chemotherapy treatment, he would always have to come back, typically the the next day or two, to get I believe it was a new last shot, which kind of gave him a bus, a, a boost in his immune system. Is that and I haven't seen again. I'm not in that sphere of of medical oncology, Doctor Oberstein, but has that been talked about at all? Of just making that kind of I know that kind of mandatory for anyone doing chemotherapy to give them that boost of immunity potentially? So, so we do sometimes do it. I think that a couple of variables, you know, you don't want to make sure you don't want someone to come in if they don't need to come Correct. in. So you have to weigh that. Yeah. And, and it's not so clear that even giving that a lot of the benefit of that boost is to prevent bacterial infections. It's not so clear that it will actually change these viral infections. Um, and so it's not necessarily the cure or the, the benefit against this particular virus that it is used for. So we are using it when we need to, but we are also very aware that if we can avoid a visit, we want to try to avoid a visit. Yeah, that's key. That's key. Well, Dr. Oberstein, I appreciate your time. I, I know it's been busy. And, and as we said in the beginning and just repeated, it's a super fluid situation. It seems like by the hour, things are changing. Thank you for all you do for the pancreatic cancer community. Thank you for taking some time to come on the Project Purple podcast. Uh, we appreciate it. I, I certainly hope our community does. Folks, if you like what you hear today, please share this information. We'll be having more episodes about COVID-19 and how that relates to our pancreatic cancer community. And thank you for listening. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.